sometimes we do things and then we really don't even think about them. So when it comes to laundry, have you ever thought about, when, when did you start thinking about your clothes? I started thinking about my clothes at about 4.30 last night and um, clean clothes, not necessarily cleaned in all, but so this was from the All website, which is uh, actually the Sun Products Corporation. Check this out. When you choose All, you believe in letting kids be kids and not just in the playroom, out there, out where they can jump into muddy puddles, dig to China with their bare hands. Actually, that's not true. You can't dig to China with your bare hands. And slide headfirst into the school at second base, out where they can wear their favorite blue striped shirt to school for the third time in one week without itching or scratching. These are the times when confidence in the laundry room shows its true colors. You are the all-capable, all-confident, all-family, and we are your detergent. (laughs) So, we have some commemorative bottles of all to pass out this morning to you. It's kind of interesting when you think about it. Um, Do you do long? No, I've given you enough stuff. You don't need... Okay, I'm coming to you, man. I'm just, I got one there. So we got, yeah, yeah, it sounds great. Here you go. Need some laundry? I just ran out of laundry. Outstanding. You're you're fixed. We're taken care of. Okay, so I'm John. Michael. Michael, nice meeting you. So at any rate, so like the the Babylonians, I think they were like the first people, um, at least according to the uh, uh, source of all knowledge, the internet, to to use soap. Okay, and and we've evolved through the ages in terms of how we deliver soap and and what. But really, how soap works, you need to appeal to the field of chemistry. So I appealed to my friend Daniel Lumberg, PhD, professor of chemistry at um, um, Gallaudet University in. Uh, Washington, D.C. Now, Gallaudet was started in the mid-1800s. Amos Kendall was the uh, uh, postmaster general under Andrew Jackson, and, um, and he donated two acres of his land. Do you do laundry? Yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> he donated two acres of his land um, so that the school could be started. I believe they started with like 12 students. And the unique thing about the school is they're bilingual. They're both English and American Sign Language. At any rate, so I talked to my friend Daniel Lumberg, and I said, okay, explain to me, help me understand this whole reality. And the reality is this. Water and dirt, or specifically water and oil, don't really like each other. So if you take an oily, soiled shirt and just throw it in a bunch of water and attempt to get it clean, it's not going to work because oil and water fight. But if you add an agent, a molecule that has something on one side of it that loves water, chemists refer to this as something that is hydrophilic, and on the other side of the molecule, you have a a, a thing that... um, loves dirt, but doesn't love water, hydrophobic, hydrophilic, hydrophobic, and you give the whole thing a Walt Disney-like ride in a washing machine, you get clean clothes. So oil hates water, Water hates oil, but water loves one side of the molecule that makes soap, and dirt oil loves the other side of the molecule, and hence you have this wonderful marriage, and you get clean clothes all the time. Right? All right, I pushed the illustration too far. 
947 is where we find our spot today. Verse 25, chapter 11. The mystery of Israel's salvation is the chapter title, section title. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Paul's really continuing this thought, and he starts off with, let me save you the trouble of being wise, okay? Now, I kind of hear, because I like to hear sarcasm, I kind of hear a kind of dirty, hairy-esque, sudden impact. Yeah, you know who you are. You think you're a legend in your own mind when Paul says, you don't want to be wise. He's not arguing that he doesn't want people to pursue wisdom. He's not arguing that he doesn't want people to do and make wise choices. There's an edge here for me in my ear. There's a tone. Let me save you the trouble of being wise in your own mind. And I think in it, Paul is making this appeal for modesty. And to be sure, it will get a little more pointed in the next few weeks. But modesty, that would allow for the possibility that I might be wrong. Modesty, that might allow for the possibility that I don't know it all. Modesty, for the possibility of reading the facts correctly, but coming to the wrong conclusion. Modesty, it it seems like it's in rare supply in our society today. And frequently in my own life, I can understand when I'm standing on quicksand by the amount of emotion I have for a given course of action. The more emotion, the less likely I'm engaged in a modest response. There's this reality, see, that when we come to a relationship with the God of the universe, there are some things that are crystal clear, that are plain, that are easy to understand. God gives us enough information so that we can be in relationship with him and the Son and the Spirit. But like any good relationship, there is a level of mystery And Paul acknowledges that reality. There's sometimes where the mystery is really, really good and sometimes where the mystery is a little terrifying. But make no mistake about it, there is this essence of mystery that I think is implicit in any good relationship. Now Paul tells us in verses 26 and 27 what the mystery is but really doesn't explain and invites a whole series of questions that makes the mystery perhaps even more mysterious. And as we start thinking and talking about this, Paul, in essence, says, don't get freaked out by the mystery. In fact, we might add to that, if you're in a relationship with God, wouldn't you want there to be mystery? I mean, there's some things in our lives where we, we, we welcome the mystery, we welcome the delight, we welcome the surprise. Say a fabulous made meal, a new restaurant, and you're like, man, how in the world did they do this? This was absolutely intense. It was wonderful. The flavors exploded off my tongue. Or the person that you love, that you've given to yourself to for your entire life. The mystery of not always knowing what she's thinking. 
and the delight, the honest delight that comes from that. The mystery of, of a glance that you can get where you're not quite sure exactly where you stand. And it's okay. The mystery that all good relationships have. Paul says, don't get freaked out when there's mysteries when it comes to God. It's okay. It's what any good relationship has. The mystery, though, is this notion of, well, verse 26 and 27. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all, it's the first of three alls that we're all experienced today. And, and it might be a great question to say, how, what does all mean? In this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. And there's a quote from the book of Isaiah. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Who's the all Israel? Is the all-Israel ethnic Israel? Is it spiritual Israel? And what does the all mean? Now, before we get into that, a couple thoughts on this. Because any thoughts that we have about these verses are governed by a reality that, well, one of the most credible voices in the entire Bible gave us. Okay? So, in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus, who's the credible source... Kind of comes when you're the second person of the Trinity. If Jesus says it, you can kind of believe it. You don't have to worry about it. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the reality that Jesus lays out is that if you are going to heaven, if you are going to be in relationship with the God of the universe, it is going to happen through the Son, through Jesus. There are not two ways to get to heaven, one for ethnic Israel and one for everyone else. Jesus articulates clearly, and anything that we understand today must be understood in the wake of that idea. The second thought, second thought is that Paul seems to kind of be down on Israel. I mean, he's talking about in the last chapter how Israel, ethnic Israel, has been a branch that's been broken off. Talking about how they've been discarded. But here's the reality that Paul is plainly making. And it's a reality that all people have, irrespective of whether or not you're ethnic Israel or whether you're a Gentile, i.e. everyone else. That there is a chance for all people to be in relationship with God. There is the opportunity for all people to become true Israel, spiritual Israel, the church, the people of God. These words we use interchangeably. And the context of the text from Isaiah is this idea of a Savior from Zion, i.e. heaven, i.e. Jesus Christ. Still the question, all Israel... And what exactly does Paul mean by all? I mean, is it all past, present, and future? Is it all present and future? Or is it all being a lot of Israel will come? 
And to be sure, it's a question that theologians have wrestled with through the ages, and one in which a mystery still exists. Suffice it to say, Paul seems to be making the case that far from God ignoring ethnic Israel, there is an opportunity, yet future, when he wrote these words, for people who ethnically call themselves Jews to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Just like there's an opportunity for anyone who considers themselves not Jewish to come to faith in Jesus Christ. The critical in all of this is, are you in the all? Backing, jumping back to the text, verse 28. As regards the gospel, they, ethnic Israel, are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. So again, this is just a recap of why ethnic Israel has value, has worth, because of the promises of God. God made a deal with the forefathers and foremothers of the nation of Israel and said, hey, here is how this is going to go down. Verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, irrevocable. Now, this is an intriguing notion to us because Paul, in essence, is saying God doesn't pull something off the table once he's offered it. So the author, offer of salvation by the author of salvation is on the table. That those who accept a relationship with Jesus Christ, it's an offer that's open to all of us. And God doesn't jerk that back off the table. Now that's intriguing to us because frequently we will treat others around us based on how they treat us. And more specifically, if we encounter someone with whom we might have a relationship with but ultimately disagree or feel like we've been wronged, person that we might have mentored or given advice to, and all of a sudden they repeatedly say, no thanks, no thanks, no thanks, we're like, I'm done with you, I'm walking away, you don't want anything that I'm giving to you, so I'm done. That's how we respond. That's not how God responds. God says, I'm here. I'm inviting you to come back to me. I'm inviting you to be in relationship with me. Inviting over and over and over again. Attempting to get through the rough exterior that is each and every one of our lives. Paul wants it clear in our brains that God does not give up on us. Verse 30. He established this, this common ground. For just as you, Gentiles, you, me, everyone, were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, verse 31, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may now also receive mercy. We're all in the same boat. Everyone is in the same situation, although at different times. The need exists. The need for a Savior exists. And then verse 32. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he have, may, have, may have mercy on all. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Now the first all in verse 32 we're very comfortable with. I've met very few people who would reject the notion that they've been disobedient in some way, shape, or form to God's activity in their life. 
most of us are willingly able to admit there is a need for a Savior. We have all been disobedient to the God of the universe in some way, shape, or form at some point in our lives. The second all is a little trickier because it seems to be saying that God will have mercy on all. And some theologians have slipped off the deep end and said, well, if God's going to have mercy on all, then God has mercy on all. And that means no one's going to hell, everyone's going to heaven. It's a belief called universalism that doesn't really is predicated on the idea that you don't have to know Christ as a savior, as your savior. You're going to heaven irrespective because God has mercy on all. Yet again, appealing to Jesus, our most credible source, there seems to be more than one occasion where Christ says the difference between heaven and hell is whether or not you're in relationship with Jesus Christ. And in fact, as we studied in the book of Revelation, at the end of all things, there is this moment in time where there are those who are identified with Christ, have a relationship with Christ, who are ushered into heaven, and those who are not in relationship with Jesus Christ, well, Jesus says, I don't know you. Depart. And it's kind of an ugly picture for those who don't believe. With that being said, the question that we must bear our minds upon today is this, given the first reality, will we experience the second reality? Given the first reality of a need for a Savior, are we willing to say, yes, I want the mercy of God? Remember again the context of these words in the wake of Jesus' words about the need to come to him through him to get to the Father. The repeated admonition of Scripture that God offers something to us that is conditioned on our affirmative response to him. So where are you at? Where are any of us are at? Have we said yes to Christ? Have we experienced this reality that I need a Savior and I've said yes to the God of the universe and a relationship with his Son, Jesus Christ? If we've said that, if we live in relationship with the God of the universe and all of the delight and mystery that therein is described and enjoyed, then we are in the second awe, experiencing the mercy of God. But the choice is one that each of us must make. It is not a choice I can make for you. It is not a choice your spouse can make for you. It's one that you as an individual, that I as an individual makes. A challenge to be in the second awe. Please pray with me. Father, we've asked that your spirit do business in our lives. 
And perhaps the most pressing need on our hearts today is to wrestle with some of the mysteries that exist in our own lives. The whys that seemingly don't have a satisfactory answer. And to be sure, Father, some of those things weigh heavily in our lives. A burden that almost seems unbearable. Yet you invite us repeatedly to discover the context for bearing our lives in our relationship with you and your Son and your Spirit. For some of us, Father, we've lacked any sense of modesty not only in spiritual things, but in life in general. Allow your spirit to work and soften the edges. Finally, Father, and most importantly, have we said yes to your son? Are we in this all who have received mercy? Work on our lives, O oh great God. Affirm the confidence that we can have, but also remind us if we're off track. Remind us of our need for your Son as our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.